Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together to study your word, to fellowship together, to spend time focusing upon your word. Father, we know that you are in control of history, and we see numerous evidences of that. There are some very interesting stories that have come out of the Israeli Operation Protective Edge, and we know that your hand has been upon uh, Israel in protecting Israel. We continue to pray for wisdom for Israel's leaders. We pray that you would foil the plots of her enemies who seek her destruction. And we know that you are still the God of Israel who provides and protects Israel. We pray for this nation, for our leaders, that they might have wisdom. Those who are truly pro-Israel would have influence and shape the policy of this nation. Father, we also pray for our city. We pray for this issue before the city council that is a that is being challenged in relationship to the sexual confusion. We know what an abomination that is in terms of your word and in terms of creation. We pray that you would give wisdom and skill to the lawyers who are bringing a legal challenge to what has taken place, and we pray that you would expose uh, the deception and the illegal activities and unethical activities of those who have sought to uh, to delay the uh, work of the pastors, uh, Houstonary Pastors Council and other groups that have signed the referendum uh, to challenge this uh, city ordinance. Pray that you would strengthen them. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight that as we study your word, you would help us to understand how to apply these principles in our lives, that we might continue to reflect your grace to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are so many things going on in terms of contemporary issues, and I like to address those, but if I addressed all the contemporary issues that are happening now, we would never get to the Bible, and I still wouldn't cover all the contemporary issues. There are a lot of things going on, but the one, and I was going to start tonight giving you some information related to what I learned at the APAC uh, Christian Leadership Summit this last Monday and Tuesday, but I went to a briefing this afternoon for dealing with this Houston Equal Rights Ordinance and just an update on where the referendum uh, stands. And just to give you a little background, that what happened uh, last week uh, or around, I think it was last Friday or I'm not sure exactly when this had to take place, but they made the deadline 
and they presented the petitions that were uh, that were signed by over fifty five thousand uh, Houstonians calling for a citywide referendum on this so-called hero ordinance. And that ordinance has some good things in it, but it's mostly redundant to a lot of other civil rights uh, ordinances. But the issue at stake is their view towards those who are so-called gender-confused. Those are involved in homosexual, uh, transgender, lesbian activities. And the fact that it would open up restrooms and mandate that restrooms and businesses be open to anyone who believed that they were uh, a gender that was not identifiable by their uh, physical characteristics, which would just open the option to many uh, of those who are perverts. And this is what's happened in some other cities. Now, Houston, let me, just a couple of things. Houston is really being watched on this and how the how the ministerial groups are handling this, how the city's handling this, this whole referendum is being observed by a lot of, of, of cities. Baton Rouge, I read an article last week that Baton Rouge had reshaped how they were writing their ordinance because of situations that arose in, in Houston. A lot of smaller municipalities in Texas have called in and said, we hope you guys win because this is coming to a city or small town near us if you guys don't win. So this is really important. And the citizens of Houston have been able, due to the um, due to the leadership of these ministerial groups, and there's a number of them, not just the Houston Area Pastors Council, but there's a, uh, a number of these 10, or 10 to 15 different groups that have uh, done the, uh, the, the yeoman work on this in getting the word out. And it has really shown the unity of the Christian community in Houston to stand behind this. And I applaud all of those in this congregation. Probably only half of the people in this, this congregation live in the city of Houston where they vote for the mayor of Houston. Many others live outside of the Houston city limits. So only those who are qualified to vote for mayor uh, could could sign the petition. But I, we had a large number of sheets that were turned in, and we did the best we could in qualifying in, in qualifying all of those. And so this came out that on August the 4th this week, according to an email that came from Brenda Stardig's office today, and she voted against this. Uh, she, Councilwoman uh, Stardig has, has taken a strong stand against the uh, Equal Rights Ordinance, but she just summed this up very well in her newsletter that came out today that on August the 4th, the city secretary's office announced the number of signatures submitted to overturn Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance fell short. Now, according to the city charter, the, it is the city secretary and only the city secretary who has the authority to validate and verify the signatures and what she is supposed to do is simply I look at the voter the voter identification number and the name to to verify that that person with that voter ID lives in the city of Houston and can vote for the mayor. That's all that she's required to do according and that's the only thing she's required to do according to the um, according to the. Uh, or uh, uh, city city um, charter, and yeah, 
No, but they could they could look it up. You didn't have to put it there, but they you know if they, you didn't have it, they could look it up. And what happened? I was just looking for my my cheat sheet on this with the information, and somehow I existed over here. Here it is. And what they did was there were over fifty five thousand signatures that were turned in, and they were able to verify ahead of time. Uh, 31,000 of those signatures. The, 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 the group that was in charge of the referendum went ahead and they verified 31,000 signatures. All they needed, according to City Secretary Anna Russell, was 17,269 signatures. It is a percentage, 10% of the highest number of votes cast in a mayoral election in the last three years, according to city charter. So we only needed 17,269 signatures to force the, the uh, referendum. And so uh, she, that is the city secretary, and according to, the, according to the laws of the city, if the city secretary certifies the petition that they have the re- minimum number of signatures, then the Equal Rights Ordinance is automatically suspended and is not to be enforced. So that would put the burden upon the city to either then repeal the Equal Rights Ordinance or to put it on the ballot at the next city election. Now, there's debate over that, whether or not that would be this November or in the citywide city uh, mayoral election in 2015, and that's going to be another uh, another battle. battle. Well, what happened was uh, Anna Russell, who's been the city secretary for over 50 years, wrote in a letter to uh, Mayor Anise Parker dated on August the 1st. Now, uh, they, they played funny with this, like they didn't have the numbers on August the 1st, and so they were waiting to August the 4th. They're playing a delay game. And the reason is, is if this is going to come out to be on the ballot on August the, I mean, uh, to be on the ballot in November, the deadline for something to be placed on the ballot for, for November is August the 18th. So the opposition from the mayor's office just is constantly trying to throw up these roadblocks to gain time. Every day it's delay, delay, delay in order to avoid uh, getting a, a, a court ruling on the, on the petition. Well, in this letter dated on August the 1st, the city secretary said, quote, I am, uh, as amended by article, uh, blah, 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 all the right articles, she says, I'm able to certify, one, that the greatest total vote cast for mayor of city, city general election was 172,694 on November 5th, 2013. 10% of that figure is 17,269, and the number of signatures verified on the petition submitted on July 3rd, 2014, is 17,846. What she did was she went through 19,000 signatures and discovered that of those 19,000, 17,846, according to her, were kosher. They fit the bill. That's more than the 17,200 needed. So she quit counting and verifying after that. And then what happened was City Attorney David Feldman, who is... um, the mayor's henchman, he has the same agenda that Mayor Parker has. In fact, a year ago, when Mayor Parker announced that the city had, had uh, under council uh, said that the, that, that the state constitution 
on defense of the Marriage Act, that marriage was between one man and one woman. She said that that was unconstitutional according to the advice of David Feldman. No court made that decision. And so Feldman filed, or, or that was challenged by this same ministerial group. It was challenged in court, and the, the court last year, uh, they applied for it to go to federal court. And you don't have to meet any qualifications for it to go to federal court. So they, uh, it automatically went to federal court, which means it, it's not on any time schedule. It'll, they'll get there whenever the federal judge wants to get there. So what happened this week was after the city secretary said they had enough signatures, uh, the city attorney, David Feldman, came along and said, well, not so fast. Let me look at all those documents. And what he did was he came along and he was looking at the signatures and Basically, they said, if we can't read a signature, it's not valid. And if a signature on one of the petition pages was illegible in their opinion, then they invalidated all the signatures on that page. That's why he was able to come along and say that there were 2,750 entire petitions, those whole pages, that would have 10, 12, 14 signatures on it. That's why they he came along and said those entire petitions were uh, invalidated so that he concluded that there were only 15,249 valid signatures, which is under the minimum. Now, as a result of that, uh, well, basic problem with that is that nowhere does it ever say your signature has to be legible. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet most people in this room don't have legible signatures. Some people have signatures that are basically nothing more than a wavy line, but that's the signature on their passport. That's the signature on their driver's license. That's their legal signature. If they were to write their name out legibly, it wouldn't be their legal signature. So they're playing games with this. So what happened on Tuesday is that... um, They filed, I mean, the good guys filed a temporary restraining order in state civil district court because the, uh, the, the, the judge was on vacation. A sitting, another sitting judge, temporary judge delayed his decision long enough, not intentionally. We're not saying that. He just didn't make his, they heard it on, on, uh, I think it was Monday afternoon and he was going to make his decision by Tuesday morning. But before he made his decision, the mayor's office, the the city attorney, filed to take it to federal court. And so that stopped everything. Uh, He did it before uh, Castelli um, uh, made his decision, and so that motion was filed to remove the suit to federal court. Now, what happened this morning, just before we had our briefing this morning, is that we got word that the federal judge said, this is this is this is a meaningless lawsuit. He threw it back down to the to the state, and so it went back to the state waiting, which means that the uh, state district court judge had to make a ruling. And just before I came to class tonight, I got an email that will be sent out giving some of this information that U.S. District Judge Gray Miller. Um, uh, no, that's not that right. That was U.S. District Judge Gray Miller was the one who denied the city of Houston's motion to remove the lawsuit to federal court. And so that went back down to state court. And as of this afternoon, civil district court judge Jeff Shadwick um, granted the temporary restraining order. 
And what that means is the Equal Rights Ordinance is suspended and cannot be enforced pending an outcome of the trial. Now, the trial is going to be set for August the 15th because all this has to be settled by August the 18th, so they're going to speed all this all this stuff up. So they're going to meet and present their case, and the, the, the top lawyer on, on our side is the top election lawyer in the state of Texas. His name is Andy Taylor. So you need to be in prayer for him, prayer for the other team, and in prayer for this this judicial decision that's going to take place as a result of the trial on August 15th and to prevent any more delays being granted in this process. And it was interesting that uh, the city secretary who's been the city secretary since the late 60s, I believe, uh, said that this was the first time that in any in the history of any filing for a referendum that the city attorney has gotten involved because he's not supposed to be involved. He's not even mentioned in the city charter in, in this process. She's supposed to just certify, make sure that, that all of the, the signatures are valid, and then it she informs the city council, and as I pointed out Tuesday night, that that it was taken away from her by the city attorney and then the city attorney reported to the mayor, and the mayor reported to the press. And as of Tuesday night, the city council had never been officially notified. City council members found out about it from the media. So they have just skirted the law and violated the law all the way around the board. So that's the update. So there's been some really good news today in that the federal, uh, federal courts threw it back to the state and the state judge granted a temporary restraining order, and now it's going to go to court on the 15th. So we need to be in prayer prayer for that. Okay, that's your current event for today. Let's open the scriptures and have our minds cleansed of all this uh, contemporary garbage and focus on the Word. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're looking at dealing with uh, the difference between how we handle essentials and non-essentials in the Christian life. Started off looking at this last week. The the, the issue is laid out in the first four verses. Uh, Paul commands us to accept, to receive, and fellowship there, and that's the idea behind the, the word used in the Greek, the person who is weak in faith. And the word weak in faith indicates somebody who is spiritually immature and we're not to get engaged in disputes and arguments and um, uh, debates over these opinions that some people have one opinion, some people have another opinion, but it's not an opinion that is that is specifically stated in the Word of God. Sometimes this is expressed as doubtful things as it's translated, but it's not really doubtful things. It's areas where there's nothing specifically stated from Scripture. We see in this passage that there's two, a couple of different issues that show up, and part of it is diet, just as there's a uh, meat issue over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But as I pointed out last time, Romans 14.14 14 makes it clear that this is likely to be an issue between uh, Jewish background uh, Christians who were brought up, trained in their tradition all their lives have been to follow the laws of, of, of kashrut, uh, eating kosher, not eating treif. Treif is the opposite of kosher. 
And so this would be very difficult for them if you were um, had been living this way and this was your tradition and your culture for 30, 40, 50 years of your life, then you might feel very uncomfortable if that was drilled into you uh, going out and having a uh, having bacon wrapped jalapeno stuff shrimp that might not just not fit with your your conscience that might be a problem so in romans fourteen fourteen Paul says, "I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, and he uses an unclean clean terminology which would indicate that it's probably going back to the Mosaic law where there's clean and unclean food. I also pointed out that as we go through this, we need to understand there's really three types of believers. The passage doesn't address the third column. The, there's the weaker or the immature believer. Then there's the stronger or the mature believer. The weaker believer has humility, but He's uncertain about what's right and wrong in these areas. He's uninformed because he hasn't studied the Scripture, so he has uh, false norms and standards in his conscience. He's grace-oriented, but he is easily influenced and swayed by the opinions of others because he hasn't had time to think through the issues himself. In contrast to the weaker believer, you have the stronger, mature believer who's also has humility and is grace-oriented. He has studied and thought through his views, and he has a well-thought-out conviction of what, how he should live and what he should practice. He's, fo- he's basing his views on divine viewpoint, but he's open to correction because he's, uh, he's characterized by humility. He's grace-oriented, but he's not easily He's not going to be easily influenced or swayed, that is, in a, in a negative sense. He, he knows what he believes, and he's not going to be easily swayed to one position one day and another position another day. Then you have the third category that's not really mentioned here, but we run into these people a lot. In fact, what I discovered when I was young, I think this is a situation that, that, that concerns younger in chronological age, younger Christians than older Christians, because they they're faced with a lot of decisions in in life as to whether they're not they're going to participate in certain things or not, and so uh, they there's always some older Christians around that just sort of tell them you know you you shouldn't do that because you're a Christian, but it's never mentioned in Scripture as such, and these are the legalists, the ones who are trying to impose their well thought through conviction on others when it's not an area that's addressed by the Scripture. Uh, so the legalist Pharisee type tends to be arrogant. He's got well-thought-out convictions, but he's imposing that on others. That's the problem is he thinks, well, because I believe this is the right thing for me, it ought to be the right thing for everybody else. So he's not open to correction. He is works-oriented because the, the, the examples we have in Scripture, they're still thinking that there is spiritual value to following the Mosaic law. It accrues to their, their spiritual growth when it doesn't, so they're works-oriented. They, like the mature, uh, mature believer, are not easily influenced. They have their convictions, and they're not going to be swayed, but they quickly take offense. Now, that th- last category is really important. We live in a hypersensitive world today. A result of hypersensitivity is politically correct speech. You see this with all of these various minority groups. 
whether you're senior citizens or whether you are uh, handicapped, or and that's not the correct term. I, I used to tell wheelchair jokes a lot, but people don't understand it now that my mother's not around. My mother loved handicapped jokes. She loved wheelchair jokes. I would come home, and I told you the story last time that my, I was born in an iron lung, and I came home one day and I said, I said, as you probably remember these little, little Johnny jokes, and I was probably 12 years old, and I said, did you hear what little Johnny? Johnny came into his mother and said, Mommy, Mommy, I unplugged Daddy's iron lung. Well, what did he say? <gasps> My mother almost fell out of her wheelchair. She was laughing so hard. But when you grow up in an environment like that and nobody's hypersensitive and nobody's running around screaming about their little handicap you know, rights and everything, you, you, you have a different attitude about some kinds of these things. Well, I've learned that people don't know all of that. They think I'm really insensitive. And I'm probably more aware of these issues than most people are. Uh, I mean, we used to do, go on family vacations back in the 50s when no one had a restroom door that was wider than 26 inches and wheelchairs were 28 inches. And that was always a major problem. Um, and so that's, those kinds of things people never, never think about. So anyhow, the, the Pharisee takes offense at everything. You say something innocently, and he's going to wear a chip on his shoulder, and he's going to take offense at it. And this is what has happened in our culture. It's dominated by self-righteousness. It happens on both the left and as well as the right side of the spectrum, but we hear it a lot, especially from minority groups, and people just can't relax anymore about anything. I mean, you go back into the 20s and 30s, and people had fun little... Uh, terms for different ethnic groups, and everybody and people who were part of that ethnic group used those terms for themselves. You know, in, the, in World War II, you the Brits were the limeys and the French were the frogs, and all of these kinds of things, and that was just just normal. And nobody took offense at those things. But now, if anybody even says those things, everybody just gets all uptight, and somebody's going to be accused somebody else of hate speech, and on and on. That's a result of a hypersensitivity. And it's a result of somebody who doesn't have a relaxed mental attitude and somebody who's not grace-oriented. And this is why you often had these kinds of, of, of conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees because Jesus would do something that was completely permissible by the, by the uh, Mosaic law, but it wasn't permiss- per- permitted by the, by the Pharisees' Pharisaical tradition and so they would get all upset about it and accuse Jesus of being being a blasphemer. And it's because they, they're operating on a false set of values. So when we run into people who are building their whole vocabulary in life on the basis of politically correct speech and, and the hypersensitive reactions of certain people, you know right away you're dealing with somebody who is arrogant and somebody who is 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 a legalist and has a pharisaical uh, mentality. Now, that's not the issue here, but a lot of times when, uh, my experience when I was a young man and making decisions about things, some of these areas that are considered doubtful things, that, that there was always certain believers, and I knew several like this, who would say, well, you just can't do that. And they were imposing their decision on me. And it wasn't because if I did that, they would stumble. 
because they were a mature believer. Pharisees don't stumble. So so often what I what I observed in life is the people that are more concerned about somebody participating in one of these doubtful activities is the people we're more worried about are offending the mature, arrogant Pharisee, not the immature who's who might who might stumble. And so Paul Paul recognizes that for the immature who's untaught that this is legitimate. One person believes he can eat all things, but the person who's weak is eating only vegetables. Now, this isn't a vegetarian issue. The reason this would happen in this culture is if an observant Jew was invited to the home of a Gentile, he wasn't sure if the meat was the product of kosher killing, uh, according to, to the Mosaic law or what the circumstances would be around anything else. The only thing that he felt he was safe to eat was the vegetables. And so th- he would only eat vegetables if he went to a Gentile house. So that would help explain what he's talking about. And so the issue that we see introduced in the first four verses is that because of, because of arrogance and not understanding or not applying the, the law of love that these believers in immaturity, and it was a part of the immaturity of even a more mature believer, is that they were judging one another over these uh, non-essentials. And and by judging, it's not just making a statement in terms of, well, they just don't understand the issues yet, is that they were making spiritual decisions about a person that only God can make as to whether or not that person was saved, whether or not that person was was uh, walking with the Lord. Well, you know, that Christian, I saw this Christian go to the movie theater, and it was an R-rated movie. They must not be a Christian. That's the kind of judgmental decision that was being made. And Romans 14.3 makes that clear. Let not him who eats despise the one who does not eat. Or let not uh, him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. In other words, God has accepted both because the issue here is really between the individual believer and the Lord. This is for non-essentials. If you do something that is a violation of a command of Scripture, then you're out of fellowship. It's also a matter between you and the Lord. But if you are a believer and you engage in judging others, then you're acting like you are, are God. Now, this is really important. As we talk about this context, the issue here has to do with judgment. When we get a little further on, we're going to see in verse 10 that Paul says, why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, we're acting like we are the judge in place of the judgment seat of Christ. So the background, and this is going to be really important when we get to a verse down in the second part of the chapter in verse 17, the backdrop or one of the backdrops to this whole discussion is what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ because we are going to be evaluated on our decisions and how we apply the word even in the areas of so-called doubtful things. So Romans 14.4, Paul says, Who are you to judge another's servant? We are all servants of God, and we... And then he goes on to say, To his own master he stands. So 
another believer's master is God. My master is God. He's not answerable to me. I'm not answerable to him, but we're both answerable to God. And he goes on to say here in verse 4, Indeed, he will be be made to stand, that is, the other believer will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And what he means by being able to stand is to stand as a believer at the judgment seat of Christ, receiving rewards. Now, there's some other ways in which the word stand is used aside from physical standing. One of them is that we are to stand firm in the faith. And at first I thought that was the idea here, that that God is the one who makes us stand firm in the faith. That's possible. But when you look at the overall context, several times the reference is to the judgment seat of Christ. I think that the word here is talking about that, that we will stand in approval at the judgment seat of Christ, for God is indeed able to make him stand. So I drew up this little diagram. And at the top we have God, the triangle indicates the Trinity, the theta in the middle represents the Greek word theos for God. On the left you have the strong or mature believer, on the right you have the weak or the immature believer. And the lines, the arrows go in both directions between each individual believer and God, and the arrow that goes from left to right from the strong believer to the weak believer has a red X through it because we're not answerable to one another. We're not to judge one another. God is the one who judges us, and we are answerable to him. That's the point in verse verse 4. Now, the next uh, the next thing we see in verse uh, verse 4 emphasizes this idea of standing, and that is going to be related to how well we as mature believers apply the four laws. I went over these last week. The first is the law of the law of love. And the law of love is mandated by the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13, 34, and 35 as the ultimate indicator of whether or not you're a disciple. Not if you're a believer, but if you are a growing, maturing disciple. It's a spiritual law based on consideration for others. A lot of Christianity reflects what I was always taught were good manners, but good manners and and good etiquette actually was an outgrowth of a culture that was grounded in the ethics of the Scripture and the idea of showing consideration for others. And when you are taught good manners, then and that's drilled into your you as a child, then that is to help you, even if you're not a Christian, to restrain the baser instincts of your sin nature. And so this is a, a reflection of a culture based on, or in our, in our tradition, a culture based on the Word of God, that we're to show proper consideration for others, including immature, untaught, or ignorant Christians. We are not to look down on, upon them, and we're not to judge them. So we are to let this law of love govern our behavior. We also have a law of liberty. We recognize we have true liberty in Christ and that in areas not addressed in Scripture uh, that are not sinful, then we have the freedom to participate or not participate. And this is clearly spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 8 through 9. Then there's the law of expediency, which indicates that 
uh, we may remove certain doubtful things from our life simply because they might cause a problem with other believers. And so rather than creating a situation that may mislead or offend others, we may just decide, well, I'm not going to do participate in that activity at all just because of where I I live and the people that I'm associated with, and it would become a problem for them, so I'm just going to recognize that I'm going to willingly limit myself in those areas so I don't create other problems. And if you're in ministry, that may be something that you do as part of personal sacrifice. When I went to Dallas Seminary, Dallas Seminary at that time had a code of conduct for Christians, and it was kind of an oddly worded statement, and it was introduced by Dr. Walbert. It wasn't there when Dr. Chafer was there, and it said, we believe that a Christian leader should not participate in um, and alcohol products or tobacco products, and we expect our students to abide by this. And that was kind of an odd little phrase, but everybody had to sign that, and so I just believed that when I went to, went to seminary that that would not, I just wasn't going to be drinking or smoking or going along with their policy because that was their policy. And so this is a, uh, a basic policy that was set up. Now, the interesting thing I learned over the years is that Dr. Walbert used to get, uh, he, was a, he was a prohibitionist because his mother was a temperance marcher. And Dr. Honer, who was the head of the New Testament department, used to give him a hard time because he would, he would always say under his breath as he'd walk by Dr. Walbert that Jesus turned water into wine and it was alcoholic. And Walbert, I remember Walbert preached a message from the pulpit on that one time that it was not. He, it, 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 um, it was not wine. It was just grape juice. And <laughs> because he had been brought up in this home where his mother was a temperance marcher and that was just drilled into him. And, um, and the way I know that it wasn't that way before Walbert was when Dr. Chafer was the president a very somewhat well-known radio preacher later on in life by the name of J. Vernon McGee from Waxahachie, Texas, had gone to Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, and they weren't dispensational, and they were uptight and legalistic. And so he came home after his first year, and he heard about this new seminary. This was about 1932-1933, and he'd heard about this new seminary in Dallas, and he wanted to make sure that they weren't legalistic. So when he went up there, they just had, I think, one building at that time, which is now, uh, later called Davidson Hall, and he decided to test their grace orientation. So he brought with him the largest, stinkiest cigar he could find. And he, when he went in to apply for seminary, he lit that cigar up and walked into the admissions office smoking that, uh, that stogie. And they did not kick him out. They accepted him, and the rest is, is history. But J. Vernon McGee was quite, uh, quite a character. Uh, but there are different scenarios, different things that happen over time that people come up with to try to establish these 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 taboos. And I've got a list here that we'll have a little fun with. This is a list of various taboos that are prevalent in some parts of the country but not in other parts of the country. Attending movies. In some parts of the country, you just never went to a movie. I talked about that 
a couple of weeks ago, or watching TV. If you went to Bob Jones or uh, Grand Rapids School of the Bible or Music or a number of other Christian schools, you couldn't watch TV. There might be one TV on the floor, but the hall monitor determined what shows could be watched and which ones couldn't. Uh, you couldn't work for pay on Sunday because that was the, the many Christians think of Sunday as the Sabbath, so you couldn't work on, on the Sabbath. And when I was in my first church, there was a, a missionary who had just retired from the mission field, a wonderful elderly lady. She was in her 70s at the time, and she had graduated from Moody Bible Institute. And you just didn't work on Sunday. You just No one could work on Sunday. That was a violation of God's law. But every Sunday after church, she and a group of other uh, senior ladies would go to Wyatt's Cafeteria for lunch. And I said, I asked her one time, somewhat jokingly, but I wanted to just kind of needle her a little bit. I said, you don't really think that people should work on Sunday? No, not at all. It's a sin. I said, well, what about all those poor workers at Wyatt's Cafeteria? You expect them to, to be there working and, and, and providing you a meal? Oh, she got a look on her face. I don't think she could. She ever went back to Wyatt's Cafeteria for lunch again with a clean conscience. I felt terrible. Fishing on Sunday or drinking wine in moderation or cooking with wine, attending the theater for live drama. That was that for many, many centuries. I mean, you go back to Victorian England. That was, I mean, Elizabethan England, even at that time for the Puritans. Uh, later on, you couldn't go to the theater, or participating in sports, or participating in co- contact sports, or eating food in the church building. We're all just going to go to hell for that. You know? <laughs> um, using any musical instrument in worship. There are some denominations that are that way because they didn't have pianos in the Bible. You can't play a piano in church. They didn't have organs in the Bible. You can't play an organ in church, not to mention a guitar or anything else. Um, kissing, if you're not married, you can't kiss. Long hair on men, that was big in the late 60s. Uh, taking tranquilizers, wearing two-piece swimsuits or bikinis, something like that, mixed swimming. They used to call it mixed bathing. I met a guy when I went to seminary who had been a pastor of an in, or a youth pastor in an independent Baptist church somewhere in the south, Mississippi or Alabama, before he came to seminary. He told me this story, and I just couldn't believe it. I had spent a lot of time in high school and in college going on ski trips with Campanile. I don't think they do those anymore, but we did that a lot back back at, at that time. And, of course, if you go skiing, you, they have bib overalls, and then they had, uh, back in the 60s, they had really tight uh, stretch uh, ski pants, if you uh, remember that or seeing films on that or something. But... What they did at this church was because women had to dress like women, which meant women had to wear skirts or dresses, that when they took the youth group skiing, they had to wear a dress over their bib overalls, over their ski wear. This was in 1977. Just amazing that, that they had that attitude. Or buying life insurance. You'll go to hell if you buy life insurance. Or smoke. If you smoke and buy life insurance, you're sure to go to hell. Uh, wearing pants or pantsuits to church. Using a Bible other than the King James Version. Or raising tobacco. Now, you go to certain parts of the Bible Belt, if you smoke, you were, you were in carnality. But if you smoked in North Carolina or Virginia, you were contributing to the economy and you were a mature believer. 
see, it's all, many of these things are really culturally, culturally determined. Uh, using guitars in worship, women wearing makeups, uh, men having, wearing makeup, men, men wearing beards, uh, women having short hair, uh, dancing, uh, those things were just, those are some of the things on the list. Every now and then people tell me other things and I add those to them. But these were the kind of taboos and they're used to control people in legalistic denominations because the problem has always been for Christians going back to the end of the first century is if you're saved by grace, what's to keep you in line after you're saved? What's to keep you from, from just living a licentious lifestyle? And so denominations would come up and churches and pastors would come up with these kinds of rules in order to keep everybody in line. And that always flows from a core of self-righteousness and arrogance, and it creates a false criterion for spirituality. You're defining a person's spiritual status by overt behavior. And this is part of the problem in lordship salvation because ultimately in lordship salvation, what, what, what they're trying to do is quantify fruit. When the scripture says that a believer should produce fruit, they want to quantify it and say, well, I saw so-and-so do X, Y, or Z. How can they be a Christian? And I think almost everyone in this room has probably said something close to that at one point or another. And yet, if we believe in grace, we know that they can have done anything, and they may continue to do it after they're saved because they haven't grown or matured uh, in the Lord at all. So they create a rigid network of, of these taboos or these systems of right or wrong that are based on personal opinion, they're based on cultural background, uh, tradition, or prejudice. But it's it's just a problem. So this this creates these these uh, false or pseudo systems of spirituality. And instead of teaching the Bible so that people can learn to make wise decisions about these things, uh, they they just go to this this sort of a, a crib sheet. And if if that 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 activity is on the crib sheet, then I can't do it. And instead of thinking like a mature person and being able to work their way through the issues in different uh, different situations and different different circumstances. Now the issue here is going to be knowledge. In First Corinthians eight seven, an important parallel passage, Paul says, however, not all men have this knowledge. It boils down to a knowledge issue for the weaker believer. He says, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, we're going to get into the issue with conscience in a minute, but this is a situation that here you have somebody who may be doing something that in and of itself isn't sinful, but because of the impact it has on their conscience, it becomes simple. Now, that gets a hard thing for us because we want to think of everything as absolute, but there are some things that are relative to your conscience. So we'll look at this in just a second. So the weaker brother is weak because he's weak in faith, according to Romans 14.1 and 14.23. Here it brings up this issue of conscience again. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if you're coming from a Jewish background and you've been trained that you can't eat pork 
Now, when you're 50 years old and you sit down, you're going to have a, a bacon sandwich. There's something in your conscience that hasn't really been retrained yet, and you feel a little guilty. What Paul is saying is you're, you're wrong. You shouldn't eat it if your conscience hasn't changed yet because what you're doing is you're setting a precedent for violating your conscience. We'll get into this a little bit more. So he's weak in faith because he hasn't understood, and Paul gives a definition here of sin that we don't usually hear, whatever is not from faith, that is, it's not based on the Word of God, and you're not trusting in it. If it's not from faith, it's sin. Second, the weaker brother is weak because he's weak in knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 Paul says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. We know that. And that there is no other God but one. So eating something that's been offered to an idol is, is irrelevant because the idol is nothing. But if that violates a person's conscience, he'll go, go on to say, then you've got a problem. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, it's weak because it's uninformed, is defiled. So it may mean nothing, but because they still think it might mean something, it defiles their conscience. So they're weak in conscience, 1 Corinthians eight ten through 12. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, so you go to the restaurant, they'd have a restaurant at the temple, and you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Paul goes on to say, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So he's going to cave in and he's going to eat there, but because he doesn't know what you know, for him it's a sin. Because he thinks that it does mean something. He's still attributing certain something to the idol. Verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish, for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now that is a hard verse that is not one of the popular verses that you hear people talk about very often. But it's true. If there is a weaker brother, not a Pharisee, not a legalist, but somebody who's weak, and you're in a position where they see you doing something, and and this doesn't apply to a lot of things. I think this is really distinct because this is a religious activity in a temple, in a in an idolatrous temple, and they see that person eating there. Just a minute, Bruce. They see that person eating there then because they haven't been informed in terms of their concept of right and wrong, this leads them to stumble. And so that creates an insensitive situation. Yeah, what was your question? Yeah, I think you just answered it. Like, this would be a, a case of uh, the stronger brother maybe causing the weaker brother to stumble, right? By, right, by, right. By, That's by, what this is. He's, by, by doing that, he's causing them to stumble. Yeah. What? What did he ask? He, okay, he asked... If that was a case of the stronger brother just by doing something in a particular location that it, it would cause a weaker brother to stumble. And he, he, he's stumbling here because, and the way Paul talks about that stumbling here is using that phrase, wound their weaker conscience. So now he thinks it's okay, but he's thinking it's okay for all the wrong reasons. So that takes us back to basic principles. A right thing done in a right way is right. But a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, 
And a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So what happens is the stronger brother is doing a right thing in the right way, but because the weaker brother hasn't learned the truth, which redefines his norms and standards and his conscience, he is he's going to do the right thing, but it's for the wrong reasons. And so that makes it wrong. Now, wait a minute. Let me get into conscience here. As unbelievers, we all learn a variety of norms and standards which may or may not be compatible with Scripture. Okay, when you're growing up, let's say you don't become a believer till you're 30 years of age and you grow up in a libertine uh, atmosphere where there are pure relativistic morals and, morals and ethics that, that you, you think anything goes. And so you have a certain idea of what's right or what's wrong. Now, when you get saved, these, these norms and standards are still ingrained in your conscience because you haven't studied the Word to, to, to tell you that this is right and that's wrong, to change those norms and standards. So at 10 minutes, 6 months after you're, uh, after you're saved, you're still operating on a set of standards that haven't been transformed by the teaching of God's Word yet. And if you're living in the 21st century and go to your average generic evangelical church, you may be a believer for 20 years before you learn that some things that that you think are right are really wrong because you're not taught very much. The third point is that the presence of absolutes in the soul is an indicator of the existence of God. And in the argument that Paul uses in Romans 2 isn't that they're right or wrong, but the very fact that you believe that there is something wrong and something right means that you have a sense of absolutes, and that's an indicator that there there are absolutes in the universe. That's Paul's argument. Even if what you if you think lying is is wonderful, remember many of you have seen this the the film that we showed years ago on the Peace Child and the book written on the Peace Child by Don Richardson. And he and his family were with New Tribes Missions and they went to Papua New Guinea and they worked with a group of people called the Sawi Indians. And the greatest thing that one Sawi could do to another is to deceive them, to set up an elaborate deception and walk them through that deception and then take advantage of them. And if if it worked, they were they, they were successful and they were... Uh, that was the highest thing that they could do. So lying for them was a really good thing. Well, lying, was that was an absolute in their culture. And because it was an absolute, it, was, it indicated that there was a, an absolute sovereign God who created absolutes, even though their absolutes were wrong. The fact that they had absolutes indicated the existence of God. So even unbelievers have absolutes, and Paul uses that in Romans 2 to argue for the existence of God. And under the fourth point, a weak conscience is one that has norms and standards that are not derived from the Bible. So the weak brother has a conscience that isn't correct, but it's still a conscience. Therefore, when someone with a weak conscience finds a, discovers a rationalization to go against his conscience... Without biblical support, okay, here's a guy who thinks lying is good. 
once he's taught from the Scripture, he's going to change that to think that lying is, is wrong, lying is bad. But if he hasn't learned that yet, and he still thinks lying is good, then if he violates that in his conscience, then Paul is saying that's wrong because it sets a precedent for rationalizing against your conscience. Okay, that's hard for some people to to get their their ideas around. That if you believe something is wrong, and you create a practice of violating that and going against it and and breaking that norm in your soul, then what you've done is you're teaching yourself how to rationalize against your conscience. And that's why the scripture says that's a sin because you're teaching yourself later on when you become a believer, it'll be even more, uh, it'll be even easier for you to violate your conscience when it's right because you've already taught yourself how to rationalize against an absolute, even if that absolute was wrong. Now you've set up a pattern where you can deceive yourself. Okay, we're about done. Did you have one more question? In the areas of gray, gray things, how can we help people who are weaker to grow? And doesn't it say, like in Philippians, like observe your elders and so sure, forth? Who sure, sure. You, you, you do help them grow because you, you teach them. Like I said, this, this is a situation that really has more in common, I would think, in our culture. If, if somebody was an alcoholic and you know, knew that they had a problem with alcohol and you go out to dinner and you order a bottle of wine for the table, then you're creating a set of circumstances that might make it easy for them to stumble. Okay, that kind of a thing. In both of these scenarios, I think that something that's different from our culture is the meat sacrifice to idols in Corinth had a re- religious dimension to it. And the, the issue of the dietary laws and then the observance of days and feast times that we, that's brought up in Romans uh, 14, 5, one person esteems one day above another, that had a religious dimension within the Mosaic law. So one of the things that's different, different when I list all the different things that are, have become taboos in, in, in American Christianity is that most of those things are not done in a religious context. Dancing. I've done in a religious context, going to a movie, going to, you know, watching television. These are not things that have religious connotations to them. Um, buying life insurance, playing pool, playing cards, uh, gambling. These are not things that have religious connotations attached to them, whereas the examples of these opinions that we see in Scripture are all areas that are deeply com- involved and enmeshed with a religious system. So... Anyhow, next time uh, we'll continue this and go into the area, uh, summarize this a little bit, and move on, on through this. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to have our thinking challenged, to think about others, recognizing that, that we have liberty and there's nothing wrong with exploiting our liberty, but that there are times and circumstances when it's probably better not to and help us to have the wisdom and the discernment to make those particular choices. Father, help us to understand the key principle above all is to love one another as Christ has loved us and to exercise that law of love and grace orientation toward everyone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.